Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Gray Tuttle and Curtis Schaefer to talk about work that they did in editing and compiling two really important recent volumes that are contributions to not just Tibetan studies and Tibetan history, but well beyond. One of them is the Tibetan History Reader, and this came out with Columbia University Press in 2013. And the other is a work that they co-edited with Matthew Kapstein, and this is Sources of Tibetan Tradition. This also came out in 2013 also with Columbia University Press. Now, both of these volumes are really, really important important, not just for the possibilities that they open up for research and scholarship in really, I think, a wide variety of fields, including but not limited to Tibetan studies and East Asian studies, but also they make possible the chance to teach with and integrate attention to Tibet, Tibetan studies, literature, history within courses that are um, sort of more broadly attuned to world history, world literature, Asian history, um, and, and well beyond. So these are resources that I think are really important, both for research, but also for teaching. And so I'm really excited that the two of them um, were able to talk about them today. So the volumes themselves, um, the Tibetan History Reader has several parts that move us from prehistory, um, a section on part one that talks about kind of Tibetan um, historiography, periodization, chronology, all the way to modern Tibetan, the 17th to the 20th centuries. And you'll, you'll hear over the course of our conversation, um, us talking about some of the important thematic foci of the articles and essays that are collected here that really take us into um, sort of Tibet's relationship with the Manchus, issues of commerce and trade, institutional growth, central leadership, and well beyond. And then we talked about sources of Tibetan tradition. And what this is, is a collection of uh, translations of primary sources that are in five parts. So part one, looks at the 7th through the 10th centuries, and it looks at sources for early medieval Tibet up to the fall of the old Tibetan empire in the 9th century and its immediate aftermath. The second part, Tibet in Fragments, you'll hear us talk a little bit about, goes from uh, the 11th to the 12th centuries, and it focuses on cultural revival in the early second millennium, or the age of fragmentation. Part three looks at the 13th through the 16th centuries, and this looks at the ways that the pressure of Mongol conquest spurred a kind of concretization of political unity in Tibet. So this period and, and this part of the book collects sources that are really coming from a time of uh, sort of political turmoil, but also great efflorescence of classical culture, especially in philosophy and religion, literature, architecture, and the art. So these sources take us through the process by which new forms of social and institutional life are developing, Monasteries are playing an increasingly central role. There's new economic prosperity. Then we come to part four of the book, the 17th to the 20th centuries. And here we see um, sources coming out of a context where the political rivalries that kind of emerged um, in the vacuum after Mongolian sort of conquest um, was no longer as central an issue come to a kind of resolution. So in part four, 17th to the 20th centuries, we have um, the kind of emergence of and sources that trace the emergence of the Dalai Lama's regime, along with the Gelukpa order from which it sprang. And there's lots of really interesting like love songs and poetry and all kinds of other sources in part four. Part five takes us into a context of expanding horizons in the early 20th century. And it looks at the reactions and interpretations of Tibetans in an increasingly modernizing world.
Okay, so there's lots and lots of stuff to talk about. Um, Curtis and Gray were really generous with their time and had lots of interesting things to say about not just the formation and sort of process of making these volumes, but also what they took to be and do take to be some of the exciting um, opportunities for using the volumes and, and some of the most exciting areas of Tibetan studies right now and in the future. So there you have it. I'll let you get right to the conversation. Um, and just to say it really was a pleasure to talk with them, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Gray Tuttle and Curtis Schaefer about their work co-editing two recent books, The Tibetan History Reader and Sources of Tibetan Tradition. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Gray and Curtis, and thanks very, very much both for the work that you've done producing these two books and for being with me today to talk about it. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you, Carla. Of course. Thank you for having us. So as is traditional for the channel, I'd like to start out by talking a little bit about what brought each of you to the field. So, Gray, could you perhaps start us off by saying a little bit about how you came to work in Tibetan studies? Yes. uh, The first thing I ever read about Tibet that I remember is Peter Matheson's Snow Leopard back in high school in, in Alabama. But I didn't really start exploring Tibetan studies until I was in college and people started running into the Dalai Lama uh, on study abroad programs and bringing stories back. And then the year of Tibet happened in 1991, the year I graduated from college nearby New York City, which was, seemed to be the epicenter of the year of Tibet. So I, I saw a lot of what was going on at that period. Great. Curtis, how did you come to work in Tibetan studies? I grew up in Marin County, California, and Eastern religions were a part of my part of my life there. It was a p- part and parcel of the culture I grew up in. Uh, when I got to college, I was very interested in Asian religions. Uh, much like many people, I read the uh, works of the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh. And I went traveling in Asia with my ro- wife uh, right after college. And it wasn't until I started uh, the first years of classical Tibetan and classical Sanskrit that I really started uh, seriously considering graduate school. And the, co- the combination of loving the places and loving the study of classical languages was what sealed it for me, and I decided to pursue this as a profession. So can yeah. I- Sorry, if I can jump in there. Oh, yeah, it was please. also, for, for me, travel that, that cinched the deal. Uh, so I went to Tibet right after... Um, graduating from college, and ended up in Amdo, which is still, you know, kind of my focus in terms of regional history. And uh, once I'd done that, I, I, I was completely hooked. I'd studied Chinese already uh, in, in college and gained some access to the community of Tibetans through that language just in, in my travels, but, but I knew I needed to, to learn more. Uh, and that's what sent me to graduate school as well. So, Gray, while I have you, when you're not working on putting together um, amazingly comprehensive volumes about Tibetan studies, what is your research um, typically focused on right now? Right now, I'm working on a monograph that is about Amdo. I'm calling it Amdo, Middle Ground Between Lhasa and Beijing, arguing that during the Qing period, uh, Amdo really was this epicenter for making connections between Central Tibet and Qing China. And that if we don't understand this region, we can't really understand where Tibet is today. And so far, I mean, there's been one monograph about a monastery from Amdo. But other than that, there has not been a sort of focus on Amdo history in even a single monograph. So that's what I'm working on now. Great. And Curtis, what have you been working on um, and uh, when you're not working on putting together volumes like this? Well, I just published a translation of a... Uh, traditional Tibetan life story of the Buddha uh, from uh, 18th century Bhutan. And I've continued to work on biography. Most of my work has been about Tibetan biographical literature and autobiographical literature. So I'm working on a book right now on uh, the uh, wife and consort of the person who put Milarepa on the map, um, a woman named Kuntu Zongmo. Uh, who lived in the end of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th century. And we have a wonderful biography of her. So it's a, 
It's a, it's a contextual piece that tries to put the life of an interesting person uh, in a time and a place um, in southwestern Tibet. So the books that we're here to talk about today are very much complementary volumes, and they're both really very impressive and very capacious volumes. How did the two of you come to decide to put together, um, these, really to embark upon the project, which must have been a massive project, to work together on and put together these volumes? And perhaps, um, Curtis, if you wouldn't mind starting, that would be great. Sure. Um, both they, they came... The, the idea for the, the two volumes uh, came along at about the same time. I think the sources was uh, the first thing that we started to think about. We had only been several uh, years out of graduate school, the both of us, and I think we were trying to imagine, on the one hand, uh, resources that we might have wished for in graduate school to improve our own uh, more generalized uh, educations about uh, Tibetan literature and history, uh, and then we were both imagining what kind of resources we want for teaching, both at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level, uh, and realized that there were there was a dearth, and there, I think there still remains a dearth, of uh, reading materials that give people uh, detailed uh, overviews, if I can use that uh, double term. And we set about to create them, uh, some from sources that we had unearth and 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 we worked with Matthew to unearth in the case of sources uh, and then pre-existing uh, materials in the case of the reader uh, because we knew that there was so much great uh, scholarship out there that uh, pe- that our peers were um, e- even our peers had trouble uh, getting their hands on at times but uh, interested non-specialists especially had so little access to um, mm-hmm. So, great. Um, can you add anything that you might feel like adding? What was your experience of coming to work on these projects and sort of integrating this into the work that you were otherwise doing? Yeah, I, you know, I was uh, in college, took courses in, in Chinese and, and Japanese history. So I was exposed to the earlier volumes of the uh, from the sources series. And I always felt like, I mean, it was kind of a mission of mine to, to try to, you know, put Tibet onto that map. And, and I came to Columbia uh, a couple of years before I actually, you know, was offered a, a tenure track position and met with Ted DeBerry and sort of threw the idea out to him, you know, on a lark, really. I mean, I, I thought it was kind of outside the orbit of, of the series, but he was very open to the idea. So um, we, we were able to run with it. And then, as Curtis says, it's it's a matter of accessibility, right? Because as Curtis and I were teaching our first courses, I think we found that, you know, we would assign these great articles that, from our perspective, um, really shed light on Tibetan history, society, and culture. But the students were so um, put off by the transcription and uh, the, you know, providing only Tibetan as a reference in the, in the footnotes and so forth that, that we decided we have to make this accessible. It's all, it's really great material, but non-specialists can't make sense of it. So that's, that's where we, you know, devote a lot of our energy into transforming these, these great essays into accessible essays. That's right. And I, I think one of the things that's really exciting, one, just one of the things that's really exciting about both of these volumes is that it really transforms um, how we and we sort of more broadly as a community of not just Asian studies or East Asian studies scholars, but also anybody teaching um, history or literature courses that you know is interested in integrating a kind of world historical, world literature approach. It transforms how we teach, right? Often, even those of us who teach um, East Asian history surveys, you do the China, Korea, um, Japan, you know, tripartite structure, and having this material available. Both the essays, and we'll talk about those, and the sources, I mean, really makes it um, just a completely different process to think about how to centrally um, integrate Tibet into these stories. So I really, um, I really appreciate this, and, and this is one of the reasons I'm really excited about this and having the chance to talk for the channel. So well, that's great, great to hear. I mean, I'm very happy that people can extract parts from these books. Oh, yeah. And we'll talk about the details um, also in a few moments. So these are both very sizable volumes that include many, 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 many um, entries, either 
um, whether we're talking about the essays right in the reader or the sources, the translated sources in the in the sources of Tibetan tradition book. How long was this process? I mean, how long did this take? And how did the two of you manage this on top of um, your otherwise, what I'm I'm sure is a very demanding workload? Um, Curtis, do you want to maybe begin speaking to that? Sources took about a decade. Uh, The Tibetan history reader did not take as long. Uh, It took a decade uh, because of those other demanding activities that you mentioned, uh, because both of us have... Uh, leadership responsibilities at our universities, and I moved universities in the in, in the midst of uh, the two volumes as well. Um, but uh, we we actually had much larger aspirations, as my grandmother would say. My eyes were uh, bigger than my stomach, and, and both of the volumes, in terms of their initial conception, were about twice as long as what you see here. Wow. I don't think that's an exaggeration, Greg. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) So, and we were politely told by the press, um, uh, uh, which we love very much, we love the people at the press very much, that that was absurd. And we needed to cut it down by half for both of them. (laughs) (laughs) Right, not only did we have to cut it down by half, but we had to go out and find patrons. So we have to yeah. thank the Shelley and Donald Rubin Foundation for stepping up to to keep them as large as they are, because it, it you know the press couldn't sort of make it happen on an affordable scale without some subvention. Right. And the affordability- and that's the whole point, right? To, exactly. Right, the affordability to keep them in the classroom, right? Exactly. So let's actually get into the volumes even just a little bit to be able to um, give listeners even just a taste of um, the possibilities of thinking about and thinking with these volumes and using them. And so I'll just kind of um, ask us a few questions to get us started. Let's look at the reader first. This is the Tibetan history reader. This is a chronologically organized set of essays that collectively introduce key topics and themes in the history of and with Tibet from prehistory all the way through the 20th century. Now, it collects and in some cases excerpts key works in Tibetan political, social, and cultural history from, for the most part, from the last three decades that were originally published elsewhere. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And it makes them accessible um, in a new way and in a central place. Um, so there are all kinds of things that we can talk about in terms of how to how you imagine using this volume, but let's um, maybe start by talking about how you came to uh, curate the volume in the way you did. So how did you choose um, the kinds of essays that w- that appear here and the, the kind of coverage that you um, hoped to achieve? And Curtis, maybe you can start us off and then, Gray, you can chime in afterwards as well. Well, the challenge was between depth and breadth for any given article. Uh, we started both volumes with a, with a chronological sketch uh, that we have worked that we had worked up over a couple of years, and we sought to integrate uh, um, a, a richness and a specificity of place within that chronological framework. Um, but when it comes to the reader, uh, different articles do different things. So, for instance, Brian Cuevas's article on periodization is at the beginning of the book because it's, it's, it's framing a problem, right? How do you divide uh, uh, the 1,300 years or so of Tibetan history as is represented in the written word uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a useful way? Um, Peter Schwieger's article about myth versus history is also important for helping us as scholars and our students and um, our peers think about what are what's distinctive about uh, Tibetan understandings of its own past, particularly through the myth of the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara? As we move through the uh, the volume, we we were always mindful to pick the best scholarship that we could, pick material that we thought was really um, um, useful, interesting, well wrought, uh, but that uh, fulfilled a certain coverage need that we had developed through our through our chronology, too, and through our sense of wanting to cover uh, different places and, and really focus people on distinctive places um, uh, in the, on the Tibetan plateau uh, as well. And that was a big challenge. Uh, you know, one of the things that we really wanted to do, which Gray put so much effort into, is give much more coverage to 
to Eastern Tibet. Um, <laughs> Gray, would you like to speak to this? Yeah, one of the other challenges I think we we faced was you know trying to find a balance between the specificity of an article and a kind of general introductory character, right? So, um, you know, there's some articles here that are really good at painting a big picture, uh, but others are focused on some tiny little detail that tells us a lot about the time period, right? So we couldn't accurately sort of summarize the Mongol relationship, the Yuan-Mongol relationship with Tibet. So we pulled this one article about the Mongol census uh, as a kind of representative one. And and, uh, I think that may be sort of in a way more challenging, but it's a kind of document-based or, you know, event-based focus that that helped uh, elucidate a whole problem and issue that we just didn't have the kind of space to cover otherwise in the work. I mean, I think this is actually um, in in sort of thinking now about the way that you've organized the pieces um, within not just chronological units, but also um, to kind of highlight important themes. This is really important. And I think I want to just mark this for listeners because one of the kinds of work that the volume does as a result is allow users and allow readers to pick out moments that may not, um, or perhaps not because they are scholars of Tibetan studies specifically, right? Or they're teaching courses on Tibetan history or with Tibetan history. But perhaps they're interested in working with or teaching with commerce or the Manchus, right? Or Mm -hmm. um, history of medicine. And because the essays are organized in such a way that they really highlight some of these key themes and ways of thinking with Tibet, while um, simultaneously considering these key themes, it's really, really useful, I think, even if, and perhaps especially if you're not working on Tibet centrally as your focus. I mean, what, as you thought about the important themes here um, that are organizing some of these sections, right, um, the Manchus, um, commerce, institutional growth beyond central Tibet, um, can you maybe talk a little bit about how you decided on those specific areas of concentration for highlighting in the volume. Um, perhaps, yeah, either one of you who wants to start. I would say that uh, the the idea here was that, again, these were things that had not been a kind of central focus of Tibetan studies, right? Tibetan studies in general might be characterized as, you know, based in religious studies departments, right? So, um, and, and in that context, at least in, in North America, that, that's fairly true. In that context, some of these works had not, um, or some of this this approach, the economic approach, uh, the kind of regional history approach, uh, an effort to see Tibet as part of a global, you know, co- globally connected, had not, to my mind, sort of floated to the top. And so we wanted to, to bring attention to that. And, you know, again, it's a different kind of accessibility to sh- show students that there, you know, these are windows into Tibetan culture that, you know, were otherwise buried in, in specialty journals or, you know, $200 volumes published uh, from, from a conference or something like that. That's right. Curtis, would you like to speak to this? Sure. Um, I, I agree with Gray uh, in, in reference to how we characterized each part uh, uh, in, in as much as we were trying to move Tibetan studies uh, uh, out of a, a, a Buddhist studies context. Now, now, I teach in a religious studies department. I think that there's value to that. Um, and we have to recognize that the Tibetan studies has had a very interesting history in, I would say, North America in particular, and it really came out of an interest in Buddhism first and foremost, uh, um, as opposed to, let's say, um, uh, geopolitical tensions that might have driven interest in other parts of Asia uh, uh, post in, in, in the post-war period. Right? It comes a little bit later, comes starts in the 60s, and it really it becomes uh, about Buddhism. So, you know, one of the ways to look at what we've done with these two volumes is to create a vision of um, of Tibet and Tibetan studies that looks more like uh, what um, North American Chinese studies has done with the study of China, its history, its culture, its literature, its politics, etc. Um, 
and that's to replace Tibetan studies in different contexts uh, within uh, North American higher education. Uh, but it's also to show in a very simple way that um, uh, Buddhism is not always the best uh, primary lens to look at Tibet with. There are other ways, other very valuable ways um, uh, to look at Tibet. And uh, so an emphasis on politics, an emphasis on economy, uh, an emphasis on literature are all valuable starting points to look at some some material that is relatively familiar, um, the identity of the Dalai Lamas, bodhisattvas, uh, um, uh, monks and, uh, and monasteries. Right? If you reframe your starting point for looking at uh, Tibetan Buddhist monasticism uh, through politics or economics, uh, things look very different, and the, and the payoff is that you get to compare those institutions with other institutions across Asia and in a, in a larger global context in a way that starting from Buddhism doesn't always allow you to do. And in fact, there is a whole section um, of essays in this volume um, that is devoted to understanding Tibet in a global context. And that's also very much a theme that we'll talk about when we talk about the selections and the kinds of selections that are included in the sources volume as well. So let's move um, now to the sources volume. This is a, a volume called Sources of Tibetan Tradition, and this is a volume that the both of you co-edited with Matthew Katzstein. Now, Sources provides translations of key works in Tibetan literature. What that constitutes, um, sort of the idea of Tibetan literature, this is a, um, you know, a, a varying diversity of texts that come out of the use of Tibetan as a literary language for, you know, 1300 years. So Tibetan was used by many different kinds of people as a literary language for, as you put it, 1300 years here. And the volume collects more than 180 selections from a very wide range of genres and forms um, from a temporal scope that extends from medieval Tibetan empire all the way through modernity and a regional scope that takes us well uh, beyond central Tibet and includes um, attention to Tibetan Tibetan diaspora, as well as other localities of um, engagement with and through Tibetan liter literary language and literature. So one of um, the really important themes that emerges from the selections in this volume speaks to something we were just talking about, the importance of understanding Tibet in a global context, right? Now, the volume begins, um, for example, with um, in part one by um, really, I think, emblematizing the importance of understanding Tibet within a global context by in integrating into the volume sources on Tibet from Chinese, Islamic, and European works. Um, so, great. Could you perhaps uh, start us out by talking about the way that this volume really situates Tibet globally, um, either by, you know, thinking about the Chinese, Islamic, and European works, and or perhaps more broadly um, by considering, um, you know, the other works in this volume that do that, uh, do that job? And, and can you talk a little bit about why that's um, so important to do in this volume? So one of the things that is most typically said about Tibet is that it was isolated and protected and, you know, therefore it didn't modernize and it was sort of, a, you know, a hermit kingdom of all of its own. And, and I think, I mean, obviously the, the, the easy way to address this is the uh, starting with 19th and 20th century engagement with, you know, global uh, networks, for instance, the Tibetans translated Kepler's works uh, from from Chinese and and sort of processed those, and were making sense of world geographies that were coming in from the West and China and so forth. Um, but I think we can go back to um, an earlier period, and and even at the beginning of the Tibetan civilization, look at the empire and see how it was part of a connected Eurasia. Right. And so that's part of why we use the especially the Chinese sources. Um, and, and if you read these in, you know, in conjunction with the Tibetan history reader, especially Chris Beckwith's work on, on the Tibetans and the Ordos, you see that Tibet can really, you know, the Tibetan Empire can arguably uh, sort of be connected across Eurasia to, to trends that were going on well outside of Tibet. Um, and the, the Tang sources in particular actually later became sources for 
for the Tibetans of their own imperial history. Uh, the, you can't say that so much for the um, Western or, or Middle Eastern sources. Those are more, to some degree, misinformation. So it shows that Tibet, in a lot of ways, was understood better from its close neighbor to the east, China, than from its far neighbors uh, farther to the west. Um, but, but putting it in this larger context, even at, at the outset, I think helps break up that idea that Tibet somehow was hermetically sealed by some tall mountains and big rivers that were hard to cross. That that was, I think, the point we really wanted to uh, hammer away at in, in both books. That's right. And, there's, and later on in the volume, there's lots of attention to um, sources that really manifest and take us into major cultural developments that are outside, right, of central Tibet and the importance of and the emergence of foreign contacts and foreign exchange and relations. Um, we have a lot of attention here to not just um, relationships with uh, Mongols and Manchus, but also beyond that. Curtis, um, there's also some travel literature in here that's really interesting. Did you want to speak to that? Sure. Um, the, the bulk of the travel literature is in the uh, in the latter parts of the book. It doesn't really show up in a big way in the uh, in the, the the first section of the book, but I have found that to be fascinating literature because you get uh, Tibetan perceptions of other cultures, and the the material I've focused on is uh, accounts of people uh, going uh, over the Himalayas, traveling over the Himalayas into South Asia, and that's a literature that you find. Uh, um, uh, from a fairly early period, you found find accounts of Buddhist holy sites. From uh, it, it looks like uh, uh, first person witnesses, uh, and you find that up into the 18th century too. You find people going and searching for Buddhism, but along the way, uh, uh, offering very interesting insights into Indian culture and Indian economy, Indian crime, uh, uh, the Indian environment, and the Nepalese environment as well. Uh, so it gives you, again, uh, as Gray was saying, that sense that, uh, that Tibet was deeply connected. The Himalayas were in no way a wall. They were a gateway uh, that people walked through routinely. And you can find that even long after Buddhism is, uh, is ostensibly dead in, uh, in India, too, that travel continued. Now, I will say um, we tried to include material on trade in in these volumes as well, and sometimes that's it's hard to get your hands on that kind of stuff uh, given the kinds of primary sources we can typically uh, um, make use of uh, in Tibetan studies. Travel literature is a way uh, to to um, overcome that uh, that that challenge of sources because they will talk about uh, economics, and we can also. Um, uh, uh, s- um, predict by analogy that there were, if there were um, Buddhist monks traveling for uh, uh, quote unquote religious reasons uh, across the Himalayas from the plateau down to South Asia, um, there were traders uh, doing the same kinds of things, and perhaps they traveled along the same or similar routes as well. So we can use that travel literature to ask productive questions about other parts of uh, uh, Tibetan civilization as well. Now, Curtis, you mentioned um, Buddhism, and you, you sort of uh, evoked um, the importance of religious sources and religious literature. And in fact, there are a lot of um, really interesting and important religious sources that are translated mm-hmm. in this volume. Do you mm-hmm. want to maybe speak to that? For you, um, what's important for us to understand about the nature, the kind, the choice of religious sources in this volume? And, and what are you um, particularly interested in when we think about the religious sources here? Uh, well, I'm interested in the whole thing. Um, that's why we tried to put a volume together that had some broad representation. Um, I will say the one, uh, uh, whenever we had to make a choice, we focused on, um, uh, historical or narrative works or institutional history, um, and, and not on, uh, doctrine, be it philosophy, ethics, um, and, and not on ritual. So there's much that's not represented, uh, uh, here in terms of the readily available, uh, Tibetan language literature, uh, on a, a, at a global level at libraries all over the world. Um, what we've tried to focus on, say, in parts two and parts uh, part three, uh, uh, especially 
actually at the end of part two. So to part two is Tibet in fragments from empire to monastic principalities. Part three is the age of monastic and, and aristocratic hegemony. We tried to show that uh, monasteries were not simply cloistered places where people uh, prayed, right? These were, these were uh, uh, institutions that were, had political power, they had ideological power, they had social power, and they had economic power uh, as well. And we tried to pick uh, uh, selections that gave some sense of those institutions as, uh, uh, as, as multiple places and places that were um, instrumental, not exclusively instrumental, but in, in, instrumental in creating the economic, political, and cultural life that we then we come to see in later centuries, um, um, uh, at the time of the Fifth Dalai Lama, for instance. Now, part two, um, you mentioned Tibetan fragments. This is mm-hmm. um, a part of the book that focuses from mm-hmm. or the focuses on the eleventh to twelfth centuries. And mm-hmm. you mentioned the end of that, and I just kind of want to mark um, for okay. listeners, especially for listeners who might be interested in the history of science and medicine and technology. There's some really wonderful sources. I mean, really throughout the volume, right? There's some medical stuff um, earlier and later as well. But there's a whole section um, here at the end of part two that looks at um, the development of a medical tradition, some really useful medical sources here. So I just wanted to make sure that we at least marked that so that um, people who are interested in teaching courses on global science, medicine, or technology, or even doing research that integrates what's happening in Tibetan literature within a larger frame, there's some really great material in here for doing that. So good stuff. Can I say a little bit about that? Of course, please do. Yeah, Th- that uh, was really important to us. Medicine, you might say, is um, is the other big intellectual tradition uh, uh, in Tibet, aside from um, you might say Buddhism pr- proper in doctrinal terms. And we know we are in our infancy in uh, learning about Tibetan medicine. But and so, for instance. Um, we have now at our disposal, only for, since the last two years, over 1,000 uh, um, manuscripts of Tibetan medicine. And basically nobody's looked at these at all. So the resources uh, are simply staggering for the study of Tibetan medicine. And we wanted to plant seeds in this volume for future generations to take that seriously. Are there any other aspects of um, sort of t- Tibetan history, Tibetan cultural, political, religious, etc. history um, that come out in the volume that also represent attempts to plant seeds um, that are Im- particularly important to you for future work? Brett Gray, uh, do you have any it, sort of sense of that? Yeah, yeah. I'd say, I mean, one of the things that we often forget about Tibet is this Tibetan plateau, This you know, the area where Tibetan culture has for centuries and, and still persists is about the size of Western Europe, right? It's a massive area. And uh, for the most part, you know, the monographic studies that, you know, the kind of focus studies of politics have been really uh, organized around central Tibetan polities uh, for good reason, right? There, it's in Lhasa and Shigatse, you have centralized polities like you rarely have to the east. But one of the things that by the 17th century, and this is the period that I focus on, 17th century and, and onward, we start to have a lot of local, regional histories that allow us to start talking about and start understanding what was this Tibetan cultural region. For the most part, the Tibetans sort of went to central Tibet, people like Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Glupa tradition. You know, he came from eastern Tibet. His father was, was an official in the Yuan dynasty, but we don't know anything about you know, that part of his life. Uh, so it's only much later that when the Galupa start to spread out in all directions that we get these local and regional histories. And I think, you know, when you realize that a territory like that, that was managed by a monastery like Lavrang Monastery was the size of Switzerland, mm-hmm. um, then you, you know that, you know, we have to start paying attention to these things. The the one place, aside from Lebron Monastery, that has been covered in some detail is Derge uh, as a, a kingdom. Um, but there's literally dozens of these. And so we provided an opportunity for graduate students who are just beginning this work or established scholars who have been working on these things for decades um, to sort of highlight some of this work and, um, 
bring bring attention to it hopefully as a, a yes to start something and I, and i think i mean i was just looking at the association for asian studies uh conference uh proceed, you know the, the the events that are going to be happening in, in the next couple of weeks and it looks like it's it's taken hold that this uh you know, attention to Eastern Tibet and to polities outside of Central Tibet. You know, it may be that the next generation has to sort of go back and start paying attention to Central Tibet again, though, though Curtis is keeping that interest alive, you know, while also paying attention to the rest of Tibet. So um, it's it's gratifying to see that, at least with the graduate students um, working these days, that that, that direction is materializing mm-hmm. already. To kind of stay with this for a moment, Gray, are there particular areas of that work, right, as people are starting to focus on um, sort of outside of central Tibet that you find especially exciting right now? Um, This is, it may not necessarily be, um, you know, about sources or um, essays that are collected in these volumes, but given the fact that the two of you have now collaborated on um, really, you know, a kind of uh, snapshot of the state of the field, you're probably um, better positioned than any of us to, um, you know, to kind of give insight into where we're going next. So with that in mind, Greg, can you talk a little bit about um, any particular areas that are doing this um, that you're especially excited about? Well, there's, uh, I mean, there's really a host of different directions that people have gone. So sometimes people go deeper um, into a particular monastery, like Gonglo Monastery, the home of Jangyao Rope Dorje and Tukong Triganima, the these you know lamas that had such an impact in at the Chenlong's court of the Qing. Um, and they go and they study those monasteries in a way that you know they study new genres and and understand the institutional interactions uh, of these places in ways that really make us realize how little we understood before. Um, and there, uh, the other direction that the people have gone in is is um, looking at kind of history of science. Uh, like, I mean, not so much the medicine side, although people are certain, certainly exploring that, but also the exchange of geographical knowledge uh, or the exchange of astronomical knowledge from east to west, and and paying attention to that and seeing that Tibetans not only did they gravitate to this material and argue about it and wonder why it didn't match with, you know, their own Kala Chakra, you know, understanding of, of the way that the stars should, you know, be organized and time should be measured. Um, that's exciting, but it's also exciting to think about the, the Jesuits who are coming and living with them and sort of recognizing the Tibetans as equal or, uh, what to say, like real partners that, could be argued with, right? So the Jesuits would come and debate with the Tibetans and argue with them and see these monastic institutions of learning as universities, mm-hmm. you know, just as the Jesuit university was developing, they came to Tibet and saw Tibet in that context. And I find that very, very stimulating to see that kind of work coming out uh, these days. Great. Thank you. So Curtis, to kind of get us back into the volume um, itself, one of the really exciting things that's happening in the volume is there are a lot of really cool sources on um, songs and poetry. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the sources in the volumes? What, um, perhaps what sources or what aspect of the inclusion of poetry and poetic sources in here are you particularly interested in and excited about? I think Tibet has a great tradition of poetry uh, and it's for whatever reasons in myself, it's something I keep gravitating to. So well, oftentimes, Gray and I are working on the same time and place, but we're looking at totally different sources, and he's looking at institutions, and I'm looking at uh, literature. Um, what he won't tell you is that he was a poet in um, uh, in his undergraduate years, too. So he's a poet turned historian. Um, and uh, I, the stuff that I try to uh, highlight, and Matthew tried to highlight as well, is stuff that we thought was... Uh, Beautiful and somewhat distinctive. Um, so, for instance, uh, the drinking song, uh, which is in part, part three of the volume uh, by a fellow named Long Champa, is a, 
I think, a kind of a funny song, um, which goes through the stages of getting drunk and has this nice metaphor, uh, uh, metaphorical way of relating um, uh, drinking and getting drunk with the process of enlightenment. And within that, you find uh, uh, some uh, great kind of folksy, uh, grounded, uh, earthy imagery, uh, but you also get some doctrine in there, too. Something like the weaving song, which is the song after that, uh, takes you through uh, uh, a kind of um, uh, Buddhist ethics and B- Buddhist practice, but it does so by comparing um, Buddhist practices with the different parts of a loom. Uh, so again, a very grounded uh, uh, way of um, evoking evoking doctrine. Uh, Poetry was also a great medium for criticism as well, um, and that uh, we see that in lots of street songs in the late 20th century, and we see that in the 17th and 18th centuries when people from um, the, the southwestern periphery of Tibet along the um, northern border of the Himalayas and in the central Himalayas were criticizing big-time religion in central Tibet uh, through poetry. So it it has multiple functions, and it can also be very beautiful in its own right, too. Mm-hmm. So, Curtis, along the same lines um, that I was talking with Gray about in terms mm-hmm. of uh, recent developments in the field that are particularly exciting, given the aspects of Tibetan history that you are especially um, engaged in, for you, what feel like the most promising or exciting aspects of that work happening right now from where you're sitting? Okay, maybe th- three things. Two follow-ups to uh, Gray's response to your to the same question. Um, one, I think it's important to realize that twenty years ago it was um, it was uh, somewhat difficult to talk about uh, cultural intellectual uh, relationships between China and Tibet within Tibetan studies. Um, now that's totally different and, uh, and we can do that with great ease and to everyone's benefit because, uh, the two cultures were closely aligned and, uh, the, ex- and, and we need to be able to talk about that and we need to be able to do, uh, real historical research about that. So that's something that Gray in particular, um, has really been instrumental in that, that change is something he's been instrumental in affecting. Um, the other interesting thing that I think we were, were really at the beginning of is looking at uh, the uh, the 17th, the, excuse me, the 18th, and especially the 19th century growth of the Gelupa school um, far beyond um, uh, ethnic Tibetan uh, boundaries. So into China, into Mongolia, into Russia, um, uh, into India, basically everywhere. Um, and it becomes uh, one of the major uh, Pan-Asian uh, religions. And the ways in which that happened, we're starting to understand, uh, um, but we're, it's in its infancy. So and then the, finally, um, work I really like right now um, uh, is work that takes particular themes uh, uh, and really locates them in uh, time and places in a way that we didn't do so well, say, 20, 25 years ago um, when I started to get interested in uh, in Tibetan studies. So, for instance, uh, there's a book coming out by a fellow named David Di Valerio called The Holy Madman of Tibet, mm. uh, and it... Uh, uh, it takes a theme that we've known about for a long time, uh, this, this holy, this idea of a holy madman, uh, but it places it within the, um, institutional politics of 15th and 16th, uh, uh, century central and western Tibet in a way that uh, hasn't really been done before. And so that to me represents real positive growth in the field, um, uh, and it's one of the goals that we had for this book uh, was to get people thinking about any given instance of uh, Tibetan literature, Tibetan uh, 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 an event, a person, etc., uh, in particular times and places and to think through the implications of that rather than thinking of Tibetan uh, 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 Tibetan Buddhism or Tibetan literature is something displaced, out of time. Uh, um, this is, I think, the the the, the increased attention to context uh, is central to the growth of a scholarly discipline. Mm-hmm. 
And in terms of situating um, this material in time, um, Gray, if you could speak a little bit to the importance of later literature and later materials here, it's really striking um, the kind of the range and the kinds of sources in this volume that are dealing with later Tibetan history. And I know um, when we were talking a little bit earlier, you mentioned that this was something that was particularly important to how you were thinking about the um, work that the volume was doing. So would you mind speaking to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, this really happens with Tibet, the Galupa expansion into uh, Central Asia, Inner Asia, um, and, and finally to Beijing, where Tibetans come into direct contact with Russians and French and Polish uh, people and their, their sources uh, of, for, thing, for instance, things like geography and, and so forth. So that starts in the 18th century and then explodes in the 19th century. And I think it's the easiest way to rupture that idea of Tibet as an isolated place that didn't understand what was going on. Um, and a place like the sources where you don't have to have a long sustained argument uh, or develop, a, uh, you know, a, a, an article length um, sort of address addressing this issue was really great because especially Matthew and I had, had been paying attention to these issues and mm-hmm. finding little extracts of passages that, that made the case um, in a very persuasive way that we could just put these in front of students. And I think the generation you know, I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate the influence of these books, but if, if they do get picked up and used in courses, I think there will, it will be very difficult for people to say in the future, Tibet was an isolated place that did not understand what was going on in the rest of the world. Um, you know, I, I looked at a Tibetan language newspaper. I found the earliest edition I could find in 1927. And there on those pages was, you know, an account of, of local politics of what was going on in China at the time. Chiang Kai-shek turning on the communists, the communists sort of trying to respond to to that attack. And Tibetans were aware of that as it was happening. And this is not the narrative of naive Tibetans who suddenly encountered Chinese in 1950 and didn't know what to do or what to think. Um, So it's exciting to be able to pull a bunch of those sources together and, and give those to students firsthand and let them grapple with them and make sense of them on their own. Great. And have um, either one of you been using the volume or either in its um, early stages as you were putting it together or since it's come out in the classroom? And um, do either one of you have particular moments or kind of anecdotes or experiences with using this volume in the classroom that might be helpful for us as we think about as listeners how to integrate this into the classroom. Maybe um, Curtis, we can start with you and then move to Gray. I've used it with my graduate students, so there have been much smaller courses, and, and I, because of my administrative duties, I've not taught a large uh, uh, survey course in uh, Tibetan Buddhism or Tibetan Civ in recent years. Um, but it's at the graduate level, uh, it's uh, it's it does the things that we want it to do. Uh, it gives people a sense of uh, breadth, and it gives them a starting point to achieve uh, depth of learning if they want to. So, uh, at the outset, for anyone who is interested in uh, Tibet, we now have uh, many more options available for uh, uh, long and rambling pathways of study than we initially did, um, say, when graduate, when Gray and I were in graduate school. And Gray, have there been any um, you know, moments for you within either one of these volumes that have felt um, particularly useful as ways to engage a classroom in your experience? Well, I should say, I mean, I did immediately, as we developed these materials, start sharing them with, with colleagues. Uh, I was... Um, not teaching the Tibet Civ course. It is taught every year at Columbia, at least once a year. Um, but I had colleagues who were teaching it. And, and I think it started to make a difference right away, just again, in terms of accessibility uh, of, you know, the transcription and so forth. Um, and, and I've seen a steady growth. Uh, so after a break of several years, not teaching, my course had gone from 30 students to uh, 90, uh, you know, just wow. with, it, it seemed 
to be to coincide with the introduction of of these materials. So I do think that they uh, open up access to people. The Tibetan history reader, one of my, you know, as opposed to Curtis using with graduate students, one of my frustrations still is uh, as accessible as we can make the kind of mechanics of the articles, we can't totally rewrite the articles, right? And so some of the material on local Eastern Tibetan history just isn't so accessible to undergraduates who are stumbling and onto this subject for the first time. So that's, that's been a challenge that uh, I hope we address, you know, in the future by, by writing, you know, articles that do sort of take in larger frames of reference rather than kind of Tibetological or Buddhological so that, that, you know, an educated reader can, can access these materials. Um, and the last thing that, that, has come out of using these volumes and other work that I've done as well, uh, other teaching I've done as well, is that uh, the the place of women in Tibet is something that I think, you know, still needs addressing in a, in a broad way, right? So Janet Gatso and um, a volume came out not, not, too long ago from Columbia University Press that looked at women in Tibet uh, through essays, but there were great gaps in, in the narrative, in the chronological narrative. And and if you look at this volume, I think really there are a few mentions, you know, for the first thousand years. And then we pick up in, in the 17th century with, with this source that Curtis found in the archives in Nepal of a young, uh, of a Tibetan nun who whose life, you know, sort of illuminates the experience experience of women. And it's been exciting for me. I, I don't really focus on those earlier periods, but it's been exciting for me to see, especially at University of Virginia, that students are exploring those earlier lives of Tibetan women in a way that hopefully by the next time, you know, we need to come out with a revised edition that we'll be able to sort of pepper the 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 whole volume chronologically with representative voices of and about women in, in a much more uh, sustained way. I've I've definitely felt that's uh, a gap that that we have in Tibetan studies. So mentioning at uh, the particularly exciting um, archival find that got translated into the volume, that's really interesting and useful to know. Are there any other sources collected here that are particularly exciting, or that represent particularly exciting um, discoveries or finds for either one of you that you were especially enthusiastic about being able to translate and include here? And perhaps, Curtis, we can start with you. Well, a, a number of these works had been uh, published, but, uh, and I would say the vast majority of them in small print runs, both in India. Uh, and in Tibet and China and elsewhere, Bhutan, Nepal. Uh, but very few of them had been translated uh, before. Uh, so when I, when I was writing the volume, my components of the volume, I should say, um, uh, I was really focused on the Himalayas, um, and I was unearthing stuff that you could, if you wanted to, get your hands on, but nobody had bothered to. Uh, so the works of a fellow named Tenzin Repa I thought were uh, quite wonderful. Those are the critiques of central Tibet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's in part four. So I really liked those a lot um, because of their beauty and because of also their, their, their critical edge. Um, mm-hmm. Ray, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me it goes back to those, those uh, eastern Tibetan sources that, again, yes, they'd been there for a long time, but maybe because... I mean, I don't really know why, um, you know, because China was closed for so long. Uh, people had not spent time on the ground there, and these places just didn't resonate with people until, you know, things opened up in the 80s. And, and then, you know, it took a, a generation of, of students and so forth to, to go and explore these. So that's what really um, feels to me like the opening uh, of, of that part of of this massive Tibetan cultural region that we just didn't know much about. Um, I mean, one of Curtis's own students discovered material about a, a king in eastern Tibet who fought, you know, for the Kangxi emperor on a regular basis. And, you know, I'd been paying attention to this area for 15 or 20 years and had never heard of that. So it was just that kind of revelation is 
pretty much constant uh, when you're dealing with Eastern Tibet. There's just so much that hasn't been covered that you just open any page and and it's uh instantly enlightening and we we just had a conference here up at columbia and curtis was up and many others from from around the country and and uh your your neck of the woods as well there in, in uh in western canada but um it was fascinating to to look at networks through the lens of people's particular you know, they, they were all working on specific texts, uh, but it opened up an understanding of the networked relationship between figures from, you know, I mean, they, most of them are based in Amdo, but they're reaching out to Tibet and their collected works are showing up in Nepal and they're bringing garden uh, style and, and uh, design back from China. It's, it was just incredible to see the kind of connections that could be sussed out from looking at these sources in more detail. So thank you both. Um, as we come to the end or to the conclusion of our conversation, there's one final, perhaps not final, but one additional way to think about contextualizing what's happening here more broadly. Um, this is the only volume on, in the sources series, right? Sources of XYZ tradition that doesn't represent a modern nation state. So um, what, what's important for us to understand about that? And Curtis, perhaps do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, anybody who knows uh, Tibetan literature um, knows that it's it's vast, uh, and it's one of the great uh, literary traditions uh, in the world. And uh, but its history of study on a global scale has been very different, I think, than Japan or India or China or Korea uh, or even Vietnam. Vietnam, uh, in that it didn't come about primarily because of uh, uh, geopolitical concerns, geopolitical tensions. In the post-war period, uh, it came about because of our uh, um, New Age fascination with Buddhism. Um, I think part of the value of placing uh, uh, this book in this series, along with China, India, Japan, etc., um, is to is to say, you know what, um, our contemporary, our our, our our modern, late twentieth century uh, geopolitics are they're just not the most important way to look at the world, uh, and there there are other ways to to divide it up, and uh, it's time to r recognize a place that was uh, central to the formation of Eurasia in so many distinct ways um, by putting it alongside uh, the other big nation states that currently exist. Great. Did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think what surprised me the most was just how easy it was to get the agreement of, of Ted DeBerrien, the series editor at, at Columbia University Press, it just kind of naturally made sense to them that, that Tibet would, would, you know, Tibetan civilization would, would fit into this uh, series. And I think it does speak to, to Curtis's point that, that these, the geopolitical frame is, is not the most important, but it really speaks to the power of, Tibetan culture and civilization to spread itself, right? And I think that's part of what made it so obvious that this material deserved a place in, in this study. Um, I mean, if you look at it on the map, it's very obvious, right? I mean, even even as late as uh, as early as the uh, 17th century, um, there are Mongolian communities in in Russia, so in in the European parts of Russia, they were practicing Tibetan Buddhism, and up in the Baikal and uh, and you know north of Mongolia and and all the way uh, north and and east of Beijing. So it it made sense to people, and and I find that very gratifying. And it certainly there's a contemporary kind of new age interest, as as Curtis mentioned, but they can you know that interests can easily be connected to historical um, uh, events and, and trends that, that put Tibet on the map really centrally in, in, in the middle of Eurasia. Great. Well, thank you both um, for spending time talking about these two amazing volumes. Now, of course, there's a million billion things that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? There's so much in here that we just barely um, touched upon. Is there anything else about both or either of the volumes that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? And perhaps, Gray, we can start with you. Well, I, 
as I was thinking about the, the issue of women in Tibet, I also realized that one thing we absolutely have a very difficult time bringing into Tibetan history is a kind of history from below. And I think if there is a, a challenge that, that faces us into the future, it's, it's trying to write that history. And part of the problem is the archives are not open, right? I mean, they're, uh, the few archives that exist in exile are, are you know, pretty carefully controlled. And most of the archives that are in Tibet proper are very tightly controlled by the Chinese government. So that's part of the problem. But um, I think that's a challenge that, that hopefully the next generation can, can meet and, and expand on. Curtis, what about you? I hardly agree with what Gray just said. And I guess I want to end by just thanking two people. One is Matthew Capstein, our co-author, uh, for sources. Uh, he was a great person to work with, and I learned a great deal from him. And the, the volume would not be what it is without his, uh, without his work as well. And the other person uh, is Gene Smith. Gene Smith was the greatest Tibetan bibliographer of the 20th century, and uh, much of Tibetan studies uh, in North America now is owed to his labor, especially in its current uh, 21st century form. He died in 2010. Gray and I were both students of him uh, informally. He never had a teaching position at a university. And the, the shape of both of the volumes, I would say, especially sources, uh, is uh, in part from uh, a result of his guidance and uh, uh, inspiration. Well, thank you both. It's really been a pleasure, um, and I hope that lots and lots of people will have a chance to get and read and use and teach with these sources. It's really a phenomenal accomplishment. So thanks very much for making the time. Thanks. Thank you, Carla. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.